The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. So how long have you known Mr. Depp? How many years? Got to be over 40, maybe from 82 to now. And before four years ago, were you close friends? Yeah, I would consider him my best friend, yeah. Was he like a brother to you before four years ago? I mean, yeah, we were brothers. He would call me a brother, I'd call him a brother, yeah. You might remember when Johnny Depp's former best friend, Bruce Whitkin, testified against him. That was a defamation case where the verdict meant money damages. But what about a case where a former best friend's testimony leads to prison time? That's exactly what happened when former Barclays trader Akshay Naranjan testified against former Goldman banker Brijesh Goyal who was once his best friend, his classmate, his groomsman, his squash partner and wingman, and the author of an insider trading scheme that's upended both of their lives. Naranjan's testimony basically sealed Goyle's fate. After just three hours of deliberations, a New York jury returned a verdict against Goyle, guilty on all charges. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Tell us about this case, what it was about. It's an insider trading case, and it was charged a year ago by prosecutors here in Manhattan. And a few things struck me as unusual about it. First of all, the evidence that was in the indictment, I think it was July of last year when this indictment came down, had evidence like as recently as early June, May and June. So obviously they'd gotten evidence and then charged it within weeks, which is highly unusual. Secondly, it's an insider trading case, and the cooperator, the guy who actually did the trading and kept the profits for the most part, wasn't charged which is unusual. And thirdly, I did a little feature on them a year ago because they played squash together. They were best buddies. Their wives socialized. You know, they traveled together. They went to concerts, you know, uh, in Belgium, that famously. And one of them was a groomsman of the other at his wedding. So these guys were very tight. They're from India, and they met at the Haas School of Business uh, at UC Berkeley. And they both came to New York, and they were strivers. The sad thing is they made it. They were here. One of them was a VP at Goldman Sachs, and then he went and became a principal at Apollo. And the other one was a FX trader at Barclays. People come from all over the world to work on Wall Street. And, you know, these guys did everything by the book. They went to the best university in India. They went to Berkeley. And then they got to Wall Street. And then it was like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. You know, they had a few trades that, you know, the first one that was charged insider trading, they made $2,000 on it. And then the second one was over 30. Okay, that's better. It was the one that made 245000 that caught the attention of the SEC and eventually led to this. Did Naranjan maintain that he didn't know at first that Goyle was using inside information? So that's what I was looking forward to learning in the trial is how did this come about? Why did prosecutors in Manhattan who were very tough and rigid on insider trading, how did they let this guy go? And the story that Akshay told on the stand was this, that he had 
breached both these guys breached their own rules like the venial sin not the not the capital crime akshay was an fx trader at barclays and he wanted to trade in options and he was not allowed to because he was involved with options at barclays but he set up an account in the name of his brother who was in the uk and traded there and when his friend goyle heard about this he thought that was very interesting he was intrigued like that you know his friend had figured out a way to do some trading and what Akshay was trading on was not inside information. He came up with an algorithm that would chase market trends and try to beat the market. And, of course, it didn't. And according to his testimony, when Goyle found out about this, he said, no, forget the algorithm. That's like you know, trying to find a needle in a haystack. And according to Naranjan, the cooperator, Goyle said, I have good insights on the market and I'll help you. I'll, I'll give you some advice on things to buy, et cetera. And then there came in the year 2017 a series of suggestions, why don't you buy some options in Lumos? You know, it's, it's looking good to me. And uh, sure enough, a month later, Lumos was acquired and there was a gain, a modest gain of 2000 But then a series of other tips came in. And on the stand, Naranjan talked about how he really felt uh, there's something wrong here. This guy's getting this too exact too many times. And he'd pester Goyle like, are we insider trading? Do you know something? And Goyle said, no, no, not at all, not at all. And would, again, keep to his story that this is just stuff he's picking up. But in fact, prosecutors showed he was still getting emails from the firm-wide capital committee, which is highly confidential stuff at Goldman about what deals are coming in the pipeline and things that are restricted. And so he'd get a good heads up, you know, weeks or sometimes days in advance of companies that were going to be acquired. So there was a series of six of these trades that were charged. And in every one of them, you know, the prosecutors demonstrated that the memo arrived on, let's say, the first of the month saying that there'd be a deal within the next few weeks. And then shortly thereafter, Goyle would get in touch with his friend and say, you know, let's let's talk. Let's have a drink tonight. Goyle was very careful not to spell anything out in texts or in emails. It was only person to person. He never texted and said, you know, buy some options right. in Lumos or buy some options in Thermo King or whatever. It was always face-to-face meetings. And Akshay Naranjan, the Barclays trader, was accumulating profits, but there was no splitting it. They had agreed at first they would split whatever came out of this joint venture, but it wasn't until 2021. Naranjan had moved to London and then come back, changed jobs, and finally Goyle asked him for a loan of $85,000, carefully phrased in one of those text messages so you couldn't quite tell or in his email what the loan was for. And the government charged that this was basically the payback for his half of the spoils. They made about $280,000 in illicit profits, but they also blew some money still with the algorithm or other stuff. So that wasn't the total. It wasn't half of that. So without Naranjan, would there have been a case against Goyle? No. And this is this is the thing about this. And if it weren't for what Naranjan did and the way he testified, I suspect his wife was all over him and said, you've got to make this right. And by the time the FBI came calling on Goyle and Naranjan early last year, in like May of 2022, uh, by the time this came around, Naranjan decided he was going to record one of the conversations. This was actually dramatic testimony. The first time they spoke, they were talking about like, are there any incriminating messages or what's going on here? What can we get rid of? And Goyle had deleted most everything and he switched jobs. So he didn't have his text from a few years before, but Naranjan did. And the second time they met, 
Goro was very careful not to reach out to him directly, but to have the receptionist at the health club in the building where they both lived call up and relay a message, please bring down my swim goggles. I left them there. Something (laughs) innocuous that could not be traced and a phone call that wouldn't be from him. He spent a lot of time making sure there were no fingerprints on the contacts like that. They would only meet face-to-face. So at some point, when their engine didn't respond, Goyle sent his wife to knock on the door, and so they finally had to meet. Goyle brings him into a stairwell because there's no cameras in the stairwell. And we saw evidence of photos from the elevator and from common spaces, but he wanted to be out of sight of the camera. He made Naranjan put his own phone, shut it off, and put it on the stairwell behind a cement block so they couldn't be traced. And then they started talking in specific details about messages. And Naranjan had his wife's cell phone and was recording. And Naranjan testified it started, like, vibrating while he was there, like his wife was getting a call and he didn't know how to do it. So he somehow turned it off. So we only got a partial recording. So... Having gone that far, he went to the FBI, and the FBI wired him up properly for the next meeting a week later. And that's where Goyle started saying, oh, these messages are terrible. We've got to delete this, delete that. And Goyle himself started deleting messages. Was there tension in the courtroom when he was on the stand? Was Goyle glaring at him? Yes, he was. He was glaring at him, and at one point, just giving him, I'm not sure it would be a death stare, because the jury could see that, but I'm behind the defendant, you know, where the reporters sit. So I couldn't tell, but clearly he was locked in on it. And clearly... His decision to testify on his own behalf, which is very risky, was a sign that they thought they had to get him out there. And it was largely his decision, I'm told, that he wanted it. It could have gone either way. You know, defense lawyers often counsel, be careful unless you really want to go. And I think he said, yeah, I really want to go testify. And he comported himself really well. Here's the thing. The main lawyer for Goyle, Reed Brodsky of Gibson Dunn, used to be a prosecutor in that office, and he won some of the famous insider trading cases yes, brought on the Brief Bahara a decade ago. So he was the right guy for something like this. And he presented circumstantial evidence showing that Naranjan, the other guy, could actually have overheard these guys were so close that he could have overheard Goldman conversations. He could have, you know, because they knew each other's passwords to the phones when they were playing Spotify or whatever, could have. There was reasonable doubt baked into it. The problem was, even though it's possible that several of the trades could have been explained by that. You can't explain the deleting of the texts. You can't explain the obstruction. There's no story you can concoct that will reasonably explain why a guy who's being invested by the FBI starts saying, okay, we're going to delete some of these messages. This is really bad. Expletive, expletive, expletive. It's just clear. And once you see that, all the rest of the insider trading falls into place. Like, yeah, he had to have done it because the obstruction tells the story. Did he explain why he was there testifying against his yes. good friend? Yes, so that's a big part of it is the introduction he talks about and said, you know, we were close friends. I looked up to him. He was my mentor because Goyal was a few years older. He was – he seemed more mature. I spent some time last year looking through all the social media postings, particularly Naranjan had a lot of them and his wife had a lot of them. So I got to know them virtually, mm-hmm. including photos from their wedding, based on how publicly they were sharing in their lives, unlike Goyle and his wife, who had very few outside of a photo from the Tomorrowland concert in Belgium. I don't think Goyle had much on his social media sites before they shut them all down. So Naranjan talked about this, and the way he talked about it was it was definitely a big brother-little brother relationship. And clearly the FBI and the federal prosecutors in Manhattan agreed. They thought, you know, he doesn't deserve to get charged. He made the case by bringing in the original tape and then sending it. So the case would not have occurred without Naranjan cooperating or coming in like that. Or if it did, the FBI would have 
really put them both through the ringer and would have spent much more time. I mean, how did he explain why he did that? Was he afraid? Yes, he was afraid, and he suspecting it was insider trading all along, according to his testimony, and it was just dirty, stinky, his words, something like that, insider trading, and uh, I kept gnawing at him. And he couldn't share it with his wife because he knew that she would be down on him for this. So that was interesting, the portrait of the cooperator as, if not a broken man, a guy who was, you know, he knows his career in finance is over. And he spoke softly and there was contrition. And you couldn't detect any animosity on the Baranjan's part towards his former best friend. It was just, it was sad. And basically, Goyle just denied everything. Yes. And he struck me as sort of like, okay, this guy, you know, has succeeded. He's at Goldman. He knows how to manage himself. And he's on the stand, and he's saying, absolutely not. That never happened, et cetera. No, not at all. And he kept having plausible excuses for things that happened, except for the obstruction where it was less plausible. It's just, well, I panicked. That's all. I just panicked. And the prosecutors cross-examined him and put him through the ringer and said, you know, you've been lying here. Not really. And maybe the moment that really turned this from being something where it would have taken maybe a couple of days of deliberations before Friday verdict or a possible hung jury was the government's rebuttal. After a great closing argument by Reed Brodsky, the former insider trading prosecutor turned defense lawyer, raising all sorts of reasonable doubt possibilities. After that, one of the government's prosecutors, Sam Rothschild, did an excellent job with the rebuttal, just saying, you know, come on, the simplest explanation is what controls here. And what's the simplest explanation? How does this all fit? And he said, these lawyers you've heard yesterday, they're great. You know, I, I think they're terrific too, but they can't perform magic. They can't make these facts go away. You know, he clearly connected with them for them to turn around and give him a verdict. How long was the jury out? Oh, three hours. I'm glad I didn't place a wager on this because they went in midday on Wednesday, like at 1230. And I thought, okay, there's reasonable doubt here. It's at least going to go to Thursday. You got to give the guy like the respect of thinking about it for a few hours. And a note came out around 345. So several of us went up to the courtroom. And instead of asking for testimony, it said, we have a verdict. And it's like, you know, he's dead. Three hours. And the jury, they got along very well. You could tell just the chemistry. They were all sort of laughing and joking with each other. There wasn't any evidence of what you need to get a hung jury, which at a certain point I'm sure the defense wanted, is someone who can be obstinate, someone who can dig in, someone who doesn't really fit in well. That sometimes helps. There didn't seem to be any evidence of that. Yeah, they all got along well. But when the verdict came in, the jury foreman got up and said, we've reached a verdict, Your Honor guilty on all six counts. And then the judge makes sure he polls each of the 12 jurors. And one after another said, yes, guilty. They got to number 11. And this woman like paused, yeah, I, I need a moment. And she was almost tearing up. And she said, like, I had trouble hearing it, but please give me a second. And then after like almost a full minute, she said, uh, yes, guilty. You could tell she was having trouble with this. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And yet not. Because this is a sad story and you develop empathy for a defendant. You know, he's there every day and even though the evidence is there, I could understand after the fact what probably happened is they were in the jury room and 11 of the 12 are clearly like, yeah, this is clear. And she agrees intellectually. She knows it. But it's just tough emotionally because even though the judge says you're not to think of the punishment at all, you're just here to judge the facts and whether or not the defendant committed these crimes, it's clear what's going to happen to this guy. You know, he's going to go to jail. And I think she probably had trouble with that. So how much time is he facing? Well, the maximum prison term for some of these insider trading and securities fraud cases is 20 years. There's no way he'll get that. I, I suspect a few years. However, 
he testified, and it's clear the jury, you know, agreed with the government that he was lying. So the judge won't like that, that you were in my courtroom and you lied. You know, judges don't like that. So that's a negative. That will add something to it, a lack of contrition, unless he somehow comes around now and prays for mercy, which is tough to do after you've just testified, you know. Um, In some ways, Goyle struck me a bit like, to go back, I know you and I have talked about Enron before, Jeff Skilling, a very bright guy who was sort of cornered by some bad facts and tried, you know, and it was bright enough to argue his way out or try to argue his way out of some of them, but it just didn't work. And at, at the end, you know, you lose that when you're a judge at sentencing time, you don't have sympathy for a guy who clearly was not truthful in your court. It is such a sad case, friends turning against each other. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Greg F- The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This case has been extremely complex, involving a coordinated international, interagency and private sector response in an unforgiving and difficult to access region of the ocean. The Coast Guard has officially convened a Marine Board of Investigation, or MBI, into the cause of the deadly implosion of the Titan submersible on its way down to the Titanic. All five people on board died, including the CEO of the sub-company, Stockton Rush. Captain Jason Neubauer is the Coast Guard's chief investigator. The MBI is also responsible for accountability aspects of the incident, and it can make recommendations to the proper authorities to pursue civil or criminal sanctions. Carl Stanley, a sub-expert who took a trip on the same sub back in 2019, says he warned Rush about safety flaws in the vessel after the trip, but his concerns were dismissed in an email exchange. I think the more this picture shapes up, we're going to see that he was not only a terrible engineer, but something of a con man and a uh, uh, charlatan. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt, who's looked into the possible legal ramifications of the implosion. Is the U.S. or is Canada taking the lead here? Who's doing the investigating? And The U.S. Coast Guard has announced an investigation. So has Canada's Transportation Safety Board, as well as the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. British investigators and French investigators are also looking at what happened. So it's a real combination. And according to the Coast Guard, they're all working together. So are criminal charges a possibility here? There is the possibility of criminal charges. It would be tricky. It's going to be difficult. But we'll have to kind of see what the investigations produce in the United States. Under U.S. law, criminal charges would be brought under what's called the Siemens Manslaughter Statute, which dates to the 1800s. You know, it, you can imagine how in earlier periods of United States history, there were many more different types of accidents and deaths on the high seas. And the law 
has actually a relatively low bar for establishing criminal responsibility. But there are, of course, as required under any kind of law, but especially criminal law, there's certain hurdles you have to get over, one of which is jurisdiction, right? I mean, that's just kind of basic to any lawsuit, but but especially here, and that's what makes it especially tricky, is just given all the different locations involved. The company was based in Everett, Washington, in Washington State. It had a unit registered in the Bahamas, under which I think the Titan Submersible was kind of operating. The submersible is what the Titan was called. It was deployed by a Canadian ship called the Polar Prince, which left from St. John's in Newfoundland to international waters in the Atlantic over the Titanic, which it was exploring. You know, and then I mentioned the different countries involved. The, the passengers were American, Pakistani, French, and British. And so you take all this together, and it's going to be a, a, a big question of where a criminal case would be brought, who has jurisdiction. That's one hurdle under the Siemens manslaughter statute. You mentioned it's a submersible. Under the Siemens statute, is it also a question of whether it is actually a vessel? Well, June, you really seem to know your maritime law because that's, that's the other hurdle, right? So there's a kind of definition of what is a vessel under that statute. And there's big questions as to whether or not the submersible was a vessel. In fact, most legal experts that I've spoken to think it wasn't. It just wasn't designed to carry people across on top of the surface of the ocean. And, you know, it had very limited capability in terms of how it can move. So probably prosecutors, U.S. prosecutors, would be, I think, are going to be hard-pressed to fit the submersible into the definition of a vessel under that act. So, And, Joel, who would they possibly prosecute here? That's a good question because the captain, the pilot of the submersible, his name was Stockton Rush. He's also the CEO of the company OceanGate that operated it. He's dead. He was piloting the submersible when it uh, imploded. So the question is, well, uh, on the civil side, you know, who else could you go after? You know, can you go after the company itself or what's left of it or any possible affiliates of the company? On the criminal side, though, that's where the Siemens manslaughter statute actually benefits prosecutors because you can go after a kind of wide range of people. And, you know, not only its operators, but engineers and managers or even inspectors who gave it a pass maybe and when they shouldn't have. So it actually captures potentially a wide net that can be cast in terms of a criminal prosecution. Whenever there is a disaster like this, civil lawsuits are almost certain to follow. The passengers signed waivers agreeing the trip to the bottom of the Atlantic might result in injury or death. But a lot of time those waivers aren't worth the paper they're written on. What about the waivers here? Yeah, well, so that's another question that uh, comes up in particular on the on the civil side. That the maritime law there is the Death on the High Seas Act. And the waivers, as I understand it, mention the possibility of death numerous times. If you actually read the waiver, there's lots that can go wrong, OceanGate said, and it's not liable for any of it, including, you know, you dying. So that would seem on the face of it to uh, be a big problem for any civil suit. But under the law, under under really any law, a waiver can protect a company for negligence, but not if the negligence is gross. In other words, wanton or reckless conduct affecting the life of another person. And so here there were plenty of warnings. That's kind of the most interesting part of this and in some ways the most tragic part 
is that Stockton Rush, the CEO and, and pilot, had many warnings of problems with the Titan sub and disregarded them. You know, all these warnings that Stockton Rush got could be evidence of gross negligence, right? If he just got all these warnings from different sources, and I'm talking about very explicit, technical, and well-considered complaints about the problems that the Titan faced and the risks. So then the question would be, well, how much of that did he, A, ignore? But also then, you know, if you're signing these waivers, but you're not disclosing, for example, it's hard to imagine he disclosed all this information that he got, a warning of the possibility of fatality. From your story, it seemed to me that one of the most relevant pieces of evidence was a letter from the Marine Technology Society. Tell us about that. That, to me, is the most damning piece of evidence. I mean, there's there's another piece from a whistleblower lawsuit, but the letter from the Marine Technology Society dated in March of 2018, right? So this is quite a while ago in terms of, you know, its relationship to what happened here five years later. It wasn't signed, and there's some controversy or questions about the letter, but there's no question that Stockton Rush received it. And I spoke to William Conan, who's the chairman of the Marine Technology Society's Manned Submersibles Committee, which is quite a title. But the letter is very concise. It's one page long, but it describes, you know, warnings about negative outcomes, including catastrophic events and how a single, they call it a negative event, could totally kind of destroy the reputation that the Marine Technology Society has by getting its members and all the kind of people who are doing this type of deep sea diving in submersibles to adhere to industry standards and testing. And the letter says that Stockton Rush's marketing material advertises that the Titan had met or exceeded safety standards, but there's no evidence that it had actually been followed or, or tested and that he was misleading the public and urged him to stop the excursions until he got his Titan submersible tested and up to standards. The letter is, if you read it, it's just a quick, really well-written read of saying, you know, please stop this before you kill somebody. That's the upshot of it. And what about the whistleblower? The whistleblower is named David Lockridge. And at about the same time, I'm suspecting that there's some overlap between David Lockridge's firing and subsequent litigation and the letter from the Marine Technology Society, though I don't know that. David Lockridge was a high-level person and probably, I think, an engineer would describe his work, who objected to uh, the design of the Titan submersible and said so and was fired for it. And the litigation that ensued it produced enough documentation to indicate that this is another example of how Dr. Rush was really well aware, this time from a high-level employee, who ultimately refused to go forward and stay at the company unless he did something to address the design flaws that Lockridge was calling his attention to. A lot of the people on board were very wealthy. There was a billionaire, uh, father and son in one of Pakistan's wealthiest families. And the question is whether their family would even want to pursue a lawsuit? You know, I talked to a lawyer whose response to that question was probably not. Like, why, really? We kind of know what happened physically, right? The submersible imploded. And these people were, as you mentioned, wealthy, and they signed these waivers. So they knew the risk. So what's to learn? However, another lawyer 
that I spoke to pointed out that, you know, money isn't the only objective of a lawsuit. A lawsuit could be filed by these people in part because they're wealthy and can, can afford it to figure out more deeply what happened. For example, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about, the letter from the Marine Technology Society and David Lockridge's lawsuit, you know, how much more of that is there? And were they duped despite the fact that they signed these waivers and knew the risks? Maybe they didn't, right, as we're discussing here, maybe they didn't know the extent of the risks or Stockton Rush should have told them more and they want to kind of publicize that or prove that and find out the truth or, you know, maybe maybe the lawsuit is filed simply because they're angry, right? Sometimes that's a reason lawsuits are filed. It's not necessarily a rational decision. I haven't seen any indication of a filing yet, but these people, as you mentioned, were extraordinarily wealthy. You had to pay $250,000 for the privilege of taking this trip. So they were all wealthy. It's not clear to me that all of them paid that much. One of them who died his name was Paul-Henri Nargiolet, is how I would pronounce it. He's, he's a French diver and had been down to the Titanic 37 times in submersibles and as a diver. He's a, he was a renowned diver. So, you know, somebody like that is obviously really well aware of, of the risks and what's going on. And it's one of those kind of, I think, perplexing pieces of, of the story was just why would somebody like that in particular, you know, you're so well aware of what's going on in terms of the pressure that the uh, submersible is under. Why would he get on board that submersible? There are a lot of questions and too few answers here. Thanks so much, Joel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.